Daniel chapter 6 reads as follows. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to rescue you? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God has sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Some years ago, a circus lion tamer was in the midst of a particularly dangerous part of his act. He had walked into the center of the circle, and on pedestals around him were perched ferocious lions. He was moving in a rhythmic way with a crack of his whip to keep the animals at bay, and they were raising up on their hind legs and roaring and slashing their claws in his direction when all of a sudden, unscripted, the lights in the place went out. The the power failed. And for 30 long seconds, the crowd waited in hushed horror, anticipating the brutal, horrible mauling that thankfully never took place. Later on, when the lights had been restored and the circus act closed down, the local reporter approached the lion tamer and they said, I gotta ask, what were you thinking when the lights went out? And the man responded, honestly, I I wasn't thinking anything at all at first. It was suddenly so dark. And what I was mainly conscious of was a sound. The sound of those creatures breathing on me. It was so quiet for a moment, and I could just hear them breathing. And it felt like they were getting closer. And then I got really scared, he said, because I realized that even though it was pitch black and I couldn't see them, they could definitely see me. Can you imagine being in that kind of circle? I want to actually invite you to imagine that today. Because as we bring this series of studies in the book of Daniel to a close today, You are going to be heading out of this place. You're going to be going out there to do your act in the circus of this world. And I want to invite you to be especially conscious as you go there of the breath and the eyes of the ones that will be upon you. And especially 
conscious of the message that I want to leave with you today. In the year 539 B.C., the great beast that was the nation of Persia bounded down from its perch and came in under cover of darkness and mauled to death the nation of Babylon. For decades and decades, Babylon had been the supreme superpower of the era, an unquestioned a society that looked like it would never end. But all of a sudden, like this, the Persians came in and changed history. By that point in time, Persia had grown to become the most expansive and powerful empire the world had ever seen up to that particular point. And, and Persia's way of doing their empire-building work was so ingenious that when the Romans came along later, they completely copied it and reproduced it in its entirety. The particular way of maintaining control that the Persians had and that the Romans then used was ingenious enough I want to describe it for you simply because it also will give you a sense of some of the characters that we'll meet in the story from Daniel chapter 6 today. The Persians divided their empire into a series of provinces. And over each one of the provinces, they appointed a governor. They were mindful that the governor could potentially abuse the power, could go on the take, could lead policy in that area in a direction different than the Persian capital uh, sought to have it go. And so as a form of checks and balances, the Persians also appointed for each province a general. And they placed that general and a garrison of troops under the general's command in that location. And the general was responsible for reporting straight back up to the Persian uh, Empire. To make sure that the governor and the general didn't go uh, into uh, a conspiracy together and begin to siphon off funds or, or misuse their authority in some way, the Persians also appointed in every single province somebody called the secretary. And the secretary's job was also to report back to headquarters on a regular basis. And then, just in case these three amigos went into cahoots together, right, the Persians also had another group of officials they called the king's eyes. And it was the responsibility of the king's eyes to audit the affairs of all the other people in that province and report that back to the Persian emperor himself. It was a brilliant system. All of these functionaries together uh, were called as a group satraps, S-A-T-R-A-P-S, satraps. And so we read in our text for today that it pleased Darius, the uh, emperor of the uh, Medes and the Persians, it appoint, pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was, guess who? Daniel, our friend Daniel. Now, I read this story and I think immediately of the story that Jesus tells in the New Testament uh, that we call the parable of the talents. And in that particular uh, narrative, Jesus essentially says that God entrusts to people a certain package of gifts and capacities which he expects them to use faithfully for his purposes. 
And when they use what he's given to them faithfully for his purposes, uh, he then entrusts them with even more, with even more. If you know anything about the story of Daniel and been following with us, even if you haven't, it's okay, I'll just catch you up. Uh, Daniel uses whatever he's given very faithfully. And God just keeps expanding his, his influence. He keeps raising him up to higher and higher positions of, of influence uh, in the Babylonian Empire first, and now apparently even in the Persian Empire after that. So we're told here in the scriptures that Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now this is just mind-blowing because if you remember, Daniel starts out as a slave child. His country's been taken over, Israel's been taken over, he's been hauled away in chains, he's marched on a slave train to another country, he's indoctrinated into their systems. Uh, you know, he's just, he's just so much a subject. But at every point, he rises, he acts faithfully, he rises through the ranks, and now he's the secretary of state of the most powerful nation ever to arise up to this point on planet Earth. Wow, wow. So how do you suppose all of the other satraps felt about this squeaky clean Jewish guy getting the top job? How many of you ever seen Disney's The Lion King? How many of you remember the character Scar voiced by Jeremy Irons? I don't, does he do the new version? I can't remember. But the point is, Scar, who's the brother of the king, does not like the idea of, the, of the, the fortunes in the future of the child that's being raised uh, by Mufasa to become the great lord over time. And Scar, in the movies you may remember, sets out to destroy that child. Well, in like fashion, we're told in the scriptures that the other satraps just didn't, they were, their stomach turned at the thought of Daniel being given this kind of responsibility. I don't know whether it was because they didn't like the fact that he was of Jewish origin or because his ethics were of a certain kind that he was not going to allow anybody to go on the take. I, I don't know. But they, they set out in a conspiracy to, to destroy him. And the text says at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because, I love this part, he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. If you want to pray for the leaders of our land, of our businesses, of any circle of influence, pray for that, that they prove trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Unless we can get to him in some way having to do with his devotion to the law of his God, we're never going to bring him down. 
We're never going to bring them down. So for time's sake, I'm just going to condense and paraphrase what happens next. Uh, basically, these power brokers go to Darius, the king, and, and they say to him, bad news, Mr. President, bad news. Our polls are indicating that you're, you're losing influence. It's not going so well for you out there with the people. But don't worry, we got a plan. We have a great idea. Now, we know that you're really big into religious freedom. And by the way, Darius was. One of the secrets of the genius of his way of maintaining control over his empire was that he allowed every single one of his provinces to have their own religious traditions so long as they kept paying taxes. So long as the things stayed quiet and they paid tribute, people could worship any way they wanted. The Romans did that exact same thing. They, they took on that exact same pattern in their own uh, provinces. Uh, so in this particular instance, the advisors or the satraps come to him. They say, hey, listen, we know that's, that's a value for you, but just for a little while, just for 30 days, here's what you should do. You should issue an edict that says that for this 30-day period, everybody has to pray to you. They have to pray in your name, O king. And what this will do is that this will raise your name recognition. It will get people thinking about you. It will turn the hearts of the people reverently towards you. And then after 30 days, you can go back to your religious laissez-faire policy. And the king buys it. He decides it sounds like a good idea. And he signs this particular edict into law. Well, the law says that if anybody breaks the law, they should be thrown into the lion's den. They should be sealed in with ferocious lions where they would undoubtedly be mauled to a horrible death. What I want to do is pause in the story there and just make a practical observation, or an application, as it were, of this story to your life and to mine. I want to suggest to you that that every single one of us is always living our life in the presence of lions. Uh, lions of three particular kinds that I want to call out are always there with their eyes and their breath upon us. There are, first of all, those lions who breathe down your neck wanting to see you slip. They are, they are beasts or creatures like Scar in the Disney film, like the satraps in Daniel's story. These are people that, 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 are, that are actually going to be really happy if you mess up, if your faith, your character, your convictions prove to not really be all that impressive. And if they can find a way of making you compromise those commitments, they're going to be happy. If you happen to be one of those people who refuses the dishonesty or the infidelity that often marks certain business circles, but instead is true in every way, if you're the type of person that doesn't participate in the backbiting gossip or the blue humor that's common in certain social circles, but insists on, on speaking well of people and, and lifting people up, then these Creatures that are watching you are going to be made uncomfortable by you, and they're going to not uh, be really content just to leave you as you are. If you're the sort of individual who doesn't rationalize sin, uh, who doesn't uh, 
seek comrades in that kind of bad behavior, but maintains a higher standard. A lot of these people that are watching you are going to be really eager to see you show that you're a flawed human being too. And even if, even if you're one of these people that actually is willing to admit uh, your flaws and to, and to talk about how you're trying to turn from those and towards the ways of God, again, you're going to be very irritating to certain creatures in your environment. If you're one of those people that's progressively lets go of the resources that many people use just to build themselves up, and you start committing those resources to help other people, again, it is going to create some dissonance with some who are watching you. And you, like Daniel, will be a target for these lions. They will want to see you slip. And if it's not the, the physical lions, if it's not the, the, the creatures that move around you in a way that you can see, I promise you, you have a, an unseen adversary, the Bible tells us, who, who, who would like very much to bring you down. He would like to put you in a position where you have to choose between um, worldly securities, your worldly security, and your devotion to God. He would love to put you in a position like Daniel found himself in after the king's edict. Now, if you think about it, there were several options open to Daniel when he got the news that his prayer life now was commanded under pain of death to be pointed towards Darius instead of God. Daniel, first of all, could have just simply chosen not to pray for 30 days. A lot of people kind of go on a hiatus from the whole religion thing. Don't, don't we all at some point kind of let things lapse and then maybe come back to it later? Daniel could have made that choice. Or Daniel could have been secretive. He could have prayed privately to his God. A lot of us, we do that with our faith. We go underground with it. We, we're working alongside people every single day. We're in relationship with people out in our social circles, in our communities, and they've got no clue how deep our devotion to Christ is, what it is we do actually on the weekends. It's easy to go secretive with faith. But in this particular story, Daniel doesn't make that choice. Daniel doesn't do those things. If he had done those things, the beast and his unwitting lions in this story would have been delighted if they could have any way have compromised Daniel's devotion to God, they would have won something they would have thought. You see, the Bible repeatedly suggests that the purity and the regularity of Daniel's communion with God was the wellspring of what the Bible calls his exceptional qualities. Daniel was exceptional because his life was rooted exceptionally well in the character and communion of God. And, and that relationship, like Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, I in you, you will bear much fruit. That, that relationship was the secret for Daniel of his amazing fruitfulness and capacity. And so that is true for you too, and it's true for me. Our ability to live exceptionally in this world is highly related to the quality and regularity of our communion with God. And if the enemy or enemies can get us to compromise that, 
it will not be long before they get us to compromise in other areas of our life. Daniel just wouldn't let that happen. The Bible says that when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, his original home, and three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So what do you think happened? He got caught. He got caught. His, his opponents had been watching for this, hoping for this, and gleefully they caught him in this. They went back to Darius. They reminded Darius that he had indeed made this edict. He'd signed it into law, and that, I quote, in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once signed a royal edict, cannot be repealed. Remember, king? This is permanent. You can't change this. And then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, translation, not one of us, one of those other people, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king. They're hooking the king's pride, right? He pays no attention to you or to the decree that you put in writing he still prays three times a day. And the clear implication here is, King, this is humiliating to you. You better bring the heavy boom down on this guy or you're going to look weak, very weak. Very weak. And it's right then when you sort of expect, based on past pattern for ancient kings, for this guy Darius to fly into a towering rage and order Daniel ripped limb from limb that something happens the scriptures tell us something that's really kind of fascinating when the king heard this he was greatly distressed he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him there's something about Daniel that is compelling, inspiring to the king of Persia as there had been something about Daniel that was persuasive and influential in the lives of the kings of Babylon as well. And you get this sense that Darius spends all day long just trying to look for a loophole, trying to figure out some way to get around the, the law that he has signed that will allow Daniel to escape and live on, but there's no way to do that. The law can't be repealed. Darius even prays to God, may your God whom you serve continually, Daniel, may that God rescue you. The later verses say that Darius personally accompanies Daniel to his death. He's like a judge who's, who's convicted someone and, and, he, and he makes the, the green mile walk with the person that's convicted. And he goes right to the edge of the execution chamber, not sort of smugly um, carrying out the sentence, but grieving every step of the way, the fact that this is going to be done. 
And the Bible goes on and says, having watched Daniel thrown into the pit, the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't watch television, <laughs> you know. He didn't touch the fridge. Um, he was wrecked. He was wrecked, it says, and he could not sleep. You know, I said earlier, there are three kinds of lions in the circus of life who have their breath and their eyes on you. The first is like the character Scar or the satraps who want to see you slip. But the second is a little bit more like the character of Nala in the, in the Lion King story. Uh, you remember her, the female lion that is a big supporter of the future, of the future king. Uh, and, and there are some out there who want to see you succeed. I think of another lioness that I heard about that presents an interesting picture of this exact kind of, of character. Uh, many years ago, uh, President George H.W. Bush, our 41st president, uh, attended uh, the funeral in Moscow of the former Soviet leader, Leonid Brezhnev. And Bush, ever the dignified and, and, and gracious president, was deeply moved as he watched Brezhnev's widow standing by the motionless, or by the coffin of her husband, and she stood stolid and motionless by her husband, uh, just obviously in deep and profound grief herself. And as the lid was being approached by the soldiers and they began to touch it to, to, to bring the lid down, Mrs. Brezhnev, Victoria was her name, moved towards the coffin and did something there that if, you, if you, only a few people, including President Bush, who was close enough to see this, uh, later remarked was one of the most daring acts of civil disobedience ever. And very few people ever saw it. Before the soldiers were able to close the lid on the coffin, Victoria Brezhnev reached in and traced the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. The sign of the cross of Jesus on her atheist husband's chest. As one journalist later put it, there in the citadel of secular, atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that that same Jesus might yet have mercy upon her husband, upon the soul of her husband. Friends, I think Mrs. Brezhnev is not alone. I think there are cats out there who are praying that God's word is right. Don't forget that as you head out into this world. Because alongside of those beasts that breathe down your neck wanting to see you slip, there are also these other creatures who wait with bated breath wanting to see you succeed, wanting to see God work through you in a wonderful, marvelous way. 
I think there are people in every circle you're going to go into in this week ahead and months ahead who, who even though they don't, may not say it out loud, are actually wondering inside of themselves if the gospel that we profess, if the, if the pathway to abundant life that Christians talk about, if the Jesus that we worship might actually be the way and the truth and the life after all, I think there are people out there who hope it's true who hope there is a way and a truth and a life, even for us broken ones, after all. Like most felines, they're a little skittish. They're not going to make a public show of this deep hope they have, but it's there for them. And before they can personally fully trust God themselves, they're waiting to see what God does in you and in me. They're waiting to see what God does in someone's heart when he or she actually puts their trust in him for their future when the doctor's news is devastating, when the financial reversal is terrible. They're wondering what happens to a person who cares more about beginning their day soaking up spiritual inspiration than secular information. They're wondering what, what, what is the result when when people actually commit to being conduits of God's resources for the world rather than containers of resources? What is the result when men and women and students alike exchange the, 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 the ballyhooed commitment to quality time in our culture and instead say, no, I'm going to give quantity time to the important people in my life? They're waiting to see what happens when people exchange mere trends for some good traditions, when they exchange the materialism of this world for relationships as their greatest wealth. Will there be death or will there be life, people wonder, when somebody chooses family bridges over corporate ladders and, and looking upward over staring inward and commitment over convenience and obedience to God over expedience to my comfort. What happens in a life that prioritizes these things, that's devoted to God, that will not compromise even when the heat is on, there are these creatures that are watching and wondering. Friends, Daniel was that rare person in Babylon and then in Persia. Will you, will you be that rare person in our time? Will you? Because if you will, if I will, then I'm convinced there will be a third and final kind of lion we meet. One who desperately wants for you to be saved, who desperately is eager to see you become all that you can be and influence others into that life as well. I think of the, of the one that Daniel Daniel must have encountered that long night in the lion's den. I think of the uh, one of whom C.S. Lewis spoke uh, of in a story with which I want to close our time today. In his marvelous book, The Horse and His Boy, one of the Narnia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis introduces us to an orphan child by the name of Shasta. And Shasta is on this lifelong search for identity, trying to find out who he really is, 
trying to find a deeper kind of security than he holds at the present moment. And in one particular moment, Shasta winds up in a very dark glen from which he can see no way out, almost like that circus lion tamer in the darkness. And in that particular moment, Shasta suddenly sees, mirrored in all of the cold, clammy fog that swirls around him, all of the inner fears and uncertainties and anxieties that have marked his life all along. When suddenly, writes Lewis, Shasta discovered that someone or something was walking alongside of him. Alongside of him. It was pitch dark, writes Lewis, and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that Shasta could hardly hear any footfalls. Hardly. What he could hear, however, was breathing. Breathing. And, and whatever this thing was, Shasta's invisible companion seemed to be breathing on a very large scale. Unable to see the presence, Shasta begins to panic, but once more he feels the warm breath of the thing on his hands and on his face. And it is somehow, strangely, reassuring to him. And Shasta suddenly starts to talk and to pour out what's going on inside of him. And he, and he tells how he had never really known his real father or his real mother and had been brought up sternly by a fisherman who, who found him by the seaside one night. And he tells the story of a time when he made this narrow escape from imprisonment and, and then was chased by lions and was forced to swim for his life. And he spoke of the time when he was almost at his goal at another moment and, and still at that time a lion chased after him, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? Shasta says into the darkness. And it is then that a large voice speaks and it says, there was only one lion. Uh, what on earth do you mean, asked the boy. I, I just told you that there were at least two the first night and uh, there was only one, though he was swift of foot, says the voice in the darkness. How do you know, said the boy, because I was the lion, says the voice. I was the lion who forced you to join with that friend. I was the cat that comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who gave your horse new strength for the last mile so you would reach your destination in time. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. And I was the lion you do not even remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to a shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight because I had awoken him to receive you. And suddenly the mist in which Shasta had been walking turned from black to gray, and then from gray to white. And now the white around him, writes Lewis, became a shining whiteness, and he turned and saw, pacing beside him, larger even than the horse, a lion, and it was from the lion that the light was coming. 
and no one had ever seen anything more beautiful and more terrible. And his eyes rose, and their eyes met. And instantly, the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. And Shasta was alone again. But somehow, never again. Alone. Never again. Afraid. Neither was Daniel. And neither need you be. Neither shall I be in the days to come for we can face anything with a lion heart in the midst of this wild world. For the one who stopped the mouths of the beasts in Daniel's den, the one who opened the mouths of kings with praises, the one whom the book of Revelation literally calls the Lion of Judah, this same one still says, be my witness wherever you are. Be strong and courageous. For I am with you always, even to the close of this age. Please pray with me. Gracious and all-powerful God, until that day dawns when every dark den shall dissolve before the fiery brightness and glory of your presence, until that sweet morning when you shall raise the faithful from the pit and lay the wicked low, strengthen us, we pray. Make us desire nothing so passionately as communion with you. Bring forth from that wellspring courageous lives that honor you in matters small and great alike. And when the enemy breathes hot upon our neck, or the world is waiting with bated breath to see how we, your people, shall live, then may you breathe upon us, O breath of God. Fill us with life anew. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said,